0: The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Well, we are diving into 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to finish chapter 4 this week, and we're going to talk about something that I have almost no experience in whatsoever, and that is suffering well. Well. But an inner voice, one of my inner voices, uh, came to my mind this week. I don't mean, uh, they're fictional, and I know they're fictional, okay? But we all have them. I was talking to a buddy of mine, and I asked him this week, do you have, do you have inner voices? And I told him mine, and, and, uh, and he said, yeah, Ron White is one of my inner voices. And I said, he's a pastor. I said, your inner voice is a drunk comedian? And he said, yeah, yours is a fictional character, Chase, and so one of mine is a guy named Gus McCrae. He's one of Larry McMurtry's characters in Lonesome Dove, Great Book, and miniseries. That's something we used to do on TV, right? And Gus McCrae in Lonesome Dove has all kinds of anecdotal lines that can be helpful and true about life sometimes. And one of those is that it's a fine world, though rich in hardship sometimes. That's true. We live in a world that's broken, and it is a world that is full of hardship. Peter is talking to people in Asia Minor in the first century that were suffering hardship because of their faith in Christ, and he's going to tell them, do not be surprised at this fiery ordeal. Don't be surprised, which, whether it would be as a Christian or not, when suffering comes, we are surprised. I remember 11-year-old Chase Bowers stayed the night at an ant in uncle's house the day before Valentine's Day, 1986. Woke up the next morning, I thought to Valentine's Day, what I was gonna find out is that my parents were getting a divorce. I was surprised. About six months later, I know it's probably hard to imagine, but I was a sarcastic little sick. And evidently, I said something to an eighth grader that bothered him. I'm walking home from school, and he just walks up to me, punches me right in the nose. I dropped like a three-foot putt, right? I was surprised. Lots of other times in life, one that comes to mind, a relative was talking to me who's not a believer about what I was gonna do with my life. Lauren, I had just moved to temple. I was traveling and preaching. He thought, surely, this whole preaching thing must have been temporary, and he suggested four or five, why don't you do this, or why don't you do this, or why don't you do this? I said, well, I can't do any of those things, there's something in me that's just got to preach the gospel. And he just looked at me. We're sitting right across the coffee table. He goes, what a waste. And I was surprised. When trials come, whether we're suffering as a Christian or whether we're suffering in general, we tend to be surprised. And evidently, in Asia Minor, in the first century, people did as well because Peter tells them not to be surprised. And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Well, God, that's our prayer, that we would look in your word and we would be shaped by it today in such a way that we would trust you, our faithful Lord and King, and that we would be people do, who do good in the best of times and in the hardest of times. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, when Peter tells these people, do not be surprised, he's going to give them some reasons why, but I think maybe there's some more reasons that are implicit, not just explicit in the text that we ought to talk about. Why would he tell them not to be surprised? See, Peter is not writing from an ivory tower. When J.I. Packer wrote about theology and knowing God, he said, we don't practice theology from an ivory tower where we're looking down on the travelers and not experiencing what they're experiencing as they walk on the road. But we practice as travelers who walk on the road and Peter is telling them not to be surprised when they suffer because he has suffered. He suffered over and over and over for about 30 years as he's followed his resurrected Savior faithfully. We were talking in staff about this and asked just kind of why would they not be surprised and TJ, one of our our pastors, our ministry leaders, TJ says, hey, how long was it before this that that Peter's brother was killed? So TJ, I've never thought about that. Well, about a year to three years before Peter writes this letter, his brother Andrew has been martyred for the faith. He's experienced the loss of family members. He's been beaten. He's been in prison. So a guy who's along the road with them is saying, do not be surprised. Do not be surprised. But also, we're told not to be surprised because Christ suffered. Tim taught us this last week in chapter four, verse one. Since Christ therefore suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. You as followers of Jesus, he tells them, are going to suffer because Christ has suffered. Jesus had told his disciples trials were coming. The Sermon on the Mount, very early on, this large crowd of people, Jesus says this, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That just sounds upside down. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He says, you're going to suffer for my sake because God's people, God's witnesses have always suffered. That's what's going to happen in this broken world Beware of men, they'll deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. You're going to suffer. You'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And then Jesus says this radical thing in Luke 9, 23. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now we read that looking back, knowing that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, the disciples hear this and they're looking forward and this is a peculiar thing to them because in their culture, a cross was not ever gonna be seen on a necklace. It wasn't decoration in a home. Hear me, it's fine if you got a cross necklace. It's okay if you have one in your home. I'm not saying don't do that, but what I am saying is understand that's not primarily what it's for. See, when Jesus said, take up your cross, well, what in the world would he mean? Because crosses were Roman. You didn't take them up. They were laid upon you as an instrument of torture and execution for the worst of criminals. So Jesus says, if, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So Peter would say, don't be surprised, be ready to suffer well, because dying daily is what we do, right? Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So Paul's gonna die. I won't boast in anything, he says, except For the cross of Jesus Christ, through whom I was crucified to the world and the world was crucified to me. So Peter says, don't be surprised. You're followers of Jesus. You daily take up a cross and one of those crosses you bear might just be suffering in the world. See, they shouldn't be surprised because Christ suffered, because Christ told them that they would suffer and also because trials are a tool in the master's Satan means for evil in our life. God means for good. Romans 3, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Romans 5, 3, knowing that suffering produces endurance. When we suffer well in Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, we find we can continue to endure. And endurance, when we suffer well, it produces character. It shapes the character of Christ in us. And character produces hope, and hope doesn't put us to shame. Why? Because our circumstance gets better? Not necessarily, but rather because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So trials are tools in the Master's hands to shape us into the image of Christ. Trials prove our faith. Now, listen. Jesus is speaking to a people who are suffering for their faith. They're experiencing something that's foreign to most of us in the room. I think maybe a way that we bridge this text from Christians in Asia Minor in the first century to Christians in Central Texas in the 21st century is this. They were suffering for their faith. They were suffering because they were Christians and they were going to suffer, that would include exile from Jerusalem, at times exile from Rome, the eventual sacking of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple. And for us as people of faith today, we've got to ask the question, how are we going to live in Christ as we face suffering of any kind? Because we will face suffering, not just us, but all people. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven for he makes his son rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Everybody experiences the spectrum of life, but for us, trials prove our faith. See, this book began We were talking about this in staff. Man, we've been talking about suffering a lot in 1 Peter. But that's because the Bible talks about suffering a lot in 1 Peter. So Peter says he's speaking to people who are being guarded by God's power. Well, what what are they being guarded for? For a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So in the midst of their trials, he says, you're being guarded by God's power. Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold, which perishes though tested by fire. So that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Trials test our faith. He says, Do not be surprised, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. We rejoice because we understand suffering is preparing us to die, and when we die, we will be with the Lord forever and we will suffer no more. Paul said it this way in Romans 8, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Suffering is preparing us for glory. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, Paul's been beaten He's been thrown off cliffs and left for dead. He's been drug out of town and stoned. He's been chased by wild beasts many sleepless nights. He's gone hungry. He's been shipwrecked, bitten by vipers. I consider the suffering of this present time not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed to us so rejoice in so far as you share in Christ's suffering, so that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Don't live for today, live for the day. And a problem that we have is as many who would prepare us for suffering right now, prepare us poorly, like we're living for. Today, I told you all that I like this fictional character, Gus McRae. I would call Gus a fictional theologian, but there's another kind of fictional theologian. They're real people, but they don't tell you the truth about God. I watched a guy the other day. These people will come on TV and they're trying to take people's money in the name of Jesus, and I just have to stare. My wife will go, Please change the channel but it's like watching one of those lizards on your fence when they make that pink thing come out and go in. I just gotta look for a little bit. So here's a guy, listen, he, he at one time embezzled $200 million from people. He left his wife, his ministry was destroyed, and now he's on TV telling people the end time is coming and he has a little five-gallon bucket that he will sell you for a $99.99 love donation that will get you ready for the end of days. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not sure what's in that bucket, but I'm pretty sure it's not going to prepare us for horrible seasons, right? There are others who would speak about suffering we might face even as believers in America and make it worse than it is. And we don't need that. We need Jesus and we need one another. And if we suffer... We don't suffer as preppers, we suffer as the people of God who are sharing in Christ's suffering. That we may rejoice when his glory is revealed. There's a lady that did this really well because she understood that suffering makes us like Christ, it brings us closer to Christ and it leads to his glory she died in 2016. Her name was Helen Rosevere. Wrote several books after her missionary journeys. My, my favorite is called Living Sacrifice. The subtitle is, Are You Willing to Be Whittled Like an Arrow? And Helen Rosevere, many years ago, shared her story. Here's just a short video that enca- encapsulates a little bit of it
1: this small aircraft, high above the rainforests of Zaire, is someone who has lived the kind of life that is the stuff of Hollywood epics. During her years in Africa, Dr. Helen Rosevear climbed to the mountain tops of tremendous achievement, but also descended to the dark valleys of imprisonment, brutality, and rape. This is the story of her return. In 1953, as a Cambridge graduate, she left England's green and pleasant land to pioneer missionary medical work in the remote rainforests of the Belgian Congo. While she was there, the country gained independence, but then exploded into one of the cruelest civil wars in history. I guess it's something I don't think much about because for me, it was probably the most frightening thing of the whole time. They kept stopping at villages and they hated us and this was so awful and they had spears and they poked spears at us and I just had fear, terrible, terrible fear. Now living and working in Northern Ireland, Helen is getting ready to go back. In spite of the memories, she has gladly accepted an invitation to visit the hospital she helped pioneer and to meet again those who knew and loved her as Mama Luca. Now that I'm actually packing, it's just so exciting, I can't really believe it's true even. I just hope everything out there won't have changed too much, but it's so wonderful, 16 years away and now I'm going to see all my friends again. I just wonder how much they'll have changed. Will we recognize each other? Will the Swahili language come back? Will we understand each other? Will I ever want to come back again after I get there?
0: So this story of Helen Rosevere is a story of pain and of suffering, but of trust in Jesus. She spent these awful nights. She'd been in the Congo for Eleven years, revolution began, they found me, they dragged me to my feet, struck me over my head and shoulders, flung me on the ground, kicked me, dragged me to my feet again, only to strike me again. The sickening, searing pain of a broken tooth, a mouth full of sticky blood, my glasses gone, beyond sense, numb with horror and unknown fear. Driven, dragged, pushed back to my own house, yelled at, insulted, cursed, cursed. On that dreadful night, beaten and bruised, terrified and tormented, unutterably alone, I felt at last God had failed me. Now you might not have been beaten and bruised, but some of you in this room have had moments where you were terrified, you were tormented, you were unutterably alone. You felt at last God had failed you. She said, surely, he could have stepped in earlier, surely things didn't need to go that far. I had reached what seemed to be the ultimate depth of despairing nothingness. But she goes on to say, through the brutal, heartbreaking experience of rape, God met with me. With outstretched arms of love, it was an unbelievable experience. He was so utterly there, so totally understanding. His comfort was so complete. And suddenly, I knew that his love was unutterably sufficient. He did love me. He did understand. And then she asked the question, can you thank him for trusting you enough to walk through this? Can you thank him for trusting you enough to walk through this? that you may also rejoice. It's the testimony of a lady not living for today, but living for the day. When When I watched that video, I was just struck by the excitement in her voice. She couldn't wait to go back. Will I ever want to come back to England? Because for her, she said the privilege was greater than the price. So Peter says, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Or like Paul said in Romans 8, if we share in his sufferings, we may also share in his glory. What does that even mean? Can you imagine Peter says, suffer for being a Christian. But do not suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Now those are four interesting categories to me. Most of us in this room have not suffered as a murderer or a thief, though some of us in this room might have. What Peter's saying is if you suffer, he's talking to Christians, some of them who had suffered as murderers or thieves before Christ, he's saying don't do that now. If you do wrong, you will suffer for it. Then he uses this word evildoer. It's the same word in the Greek as was described of Jesus. It kind of describes a general evil, but also can describe an insurrectionist. But then he throws in meddler. I've never met anyone who did 25 years to life for meddling, right? But some people, when when we really start diving into the word, some of y'all will say that preacher's meddling, right? Well, that's not what this is talking about. But it is a fascinating word and Danny sent me down a rabbit hole this week when he said if you looked at that Greek word it's pretty interesting and I started looking and three and a half hours later looked up and it's actually two words that Peter puts together. It's only used three times in the ancient Near East Greek and Peter is the first use in preserved literature by 60 years. And it does describe this person who's a meddler or who's a busybody or who's in the affairs of others, but that's not all. The word is a, a lotrio and episcopos put together to make a lotri episkopos, which is this person who's meddling in the affairs of church. Commentators describe it like this it's a self appointed overseer in the affairs of church, not an elder, but acting like the one who's in charge, a supervisor of things that don't belong to him or her, a man or a woman diving into the affairs of the church in a way that he or she is not called to. It's a subversive, usurping, undermining idea being described. Now hear me, next week, Peter's gonna speak to elders, right? As he's writing the letter, he's saying, don't act like this. Don't do this. It's in the same category of murderer, thief, and meddler, but then he's going to tell elders, shepherd the flock. Be witnesses, shepherd willingly, not under compulsion or for gain, shepherd eagerly, be examples. But he says today, don't suffer as an evildoer. Don't suffer as an evildoer. Everybody's going to suffer. We learn this from this text. Suffering in and of itself is neither honorable nor disgraceful. It's the reason one suffers that bears out either in honor or disgrace. Peter says if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. It's an ideal that sometimes shame can be associated with suffering even if someone's not done anything wrong. And Peter says, hey, if, if you've suffered for righteousness' sake, do not be ashamed. But praise God that you bear that name. Now he says, if anyone suffers as a Christian, which sounds really normal to us, but might not have sounded normal to them, because we use the word Christian to describe people who follow Jesus all the time. But the New Testament doesn't. The word is only used three times. The disciples were first called Christians, a mocking term at Antioch. There's another time it's it's discussed where others were calling people who were following Jesus Christians. But Peter uses it now to say if you suffer if you suffer as someone who looks like Jesus, right? If your life looks like Christ, if you are a little Christ, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed. Some would do away with the word, but we might do well to consider it useful. It's a label that implies we're part of a people that Jesus redeemed, that we are together that today in Central Texas, we are together with those suffering for Christ in Central Asia. And perhaps some way, some of them might know that there are people who prayed for them today because our unity, our togetherness, our oneness in Christ crosses lines of economics, nationality, ethnicity, and everything else. It's a call to this unified suffering in Christ. So we can have joy and confidence in this label, and we will not be ashamed but will glorify God. Why? Because when we rejoice in suffering for Christ, we display to the world that God is worth immeasurably more to us than the approval or safety or comfort the world may offer us. When we suffer well, what we're saying is Jesus is worthy. Jesus is worthy. You know the story, some of you of the Moravians. This missionary group, they had a prayer chain that went for a 100 years, 24 hours of prayer, a hundred years straight, and they sent their people out in boats, and they packed everything they had in coffins, because they knew they weren't coming back. And the story goes to this one pair of Moravians. They're sailing off in the, the church that's sending them. They've been praying for them. They're waving and they shout back, may the lamb receive the reward of his suffering. That reward being their very lives because they were confessing that Jesus was immeasurably more valuable than anything the world had to offer. Peter says, suffer well and rejoice when you suffer. Live for the day, not for today, because judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Verse 17. Verse 17, Peter says, it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? See, for those who are following Christ, he says don't suffer as an evildoer, a murderer, a thief, or a meddler because discipline from God will come upon you. God disciplines his children. He disciplines those he loves. But what about those who do not obey the gospel? What about the judgment that's coming for them? Our suffering is temporary. Theirs will not be. What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And then verse 18, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? He's quoting Proverbs eleven thirty one: 31. If the righteous is repaid on earth, how much more the wicked and the sinner? Judgment is coming, so be ready to suffer well. Be ready to suffer well. And then he's going to say, Suffer in a way that trusts God. Suffer in a way that trusts God. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will and trust their souls, though they take your life and trust your soul, to a faithful creator while doing good. Well, how in the world do we do this? You do what you know to do. You do what you were created to do. He says, while you suffer, do good. Continue to be witnesses for Christ. Continue to love the most vulnerable among you for Christ. Continue to care for those that the world doesn't care for in Christ. Continue to trust. There are four things that I wrote down. Number one, when you suffer, don't imagine God is off his throne. Things can get difficult and And we can cry out and it's okay to cry out. He can handle our questions. Where are you? Where are you? God, if you're good, how in the world can this be happening? And sometimes he doesn't give an answer why, but he's there. He has not and will not stop being the king of the universe when we suffer. Don't imagine God is off his throne Number two, do run to Jesus rather than sin. Do run to Jesus, don't run to sin. It's this same concept. When things get difficult in life, sometimes you'll see married couples and a husband and wife will either lash out at one another and pull away from one another or they'll join together, press into one another and love one another well in the midst of suffering or difficulty. Don't run to sin, run to Jesus. I remember a time several years ago when a brother had fallen into sin and it was the sin of a nature and a brother of a nature that our staff had to gather and have a discussion about it. And I, I remember the room that I was in, I can see Danny Cunningham's face and hear these words. He looked at us and he said, when things get tough, don't go to your weakness. Go to Jesus. When things get tough, don't go to your weakness. Run to Jesus. He is the one who gives us everything we need for life and godliness. He is the one who knew no sin but became sin on our behalf. He's the one who will be there and who will be faithful in You're suffering. So when you suffer, don't imagine God is off his throne. Do run to Jesus rather than sin. Don't go to your weakness. Do rejoice in the middle of your suffering. Like people who trust God, that's what Helen Roosevelt did. She says one word became unbelievably clear and that word was privilege. He didn't take away the pain or the cruelty or the humiliation. No, it was all there, but now it was altogether different. It was with him. It was for him. It was in him. He was actually offering me the inestimable privilege of sharing in some little way the edge of the fellowship of his suffering. The word that came to mind was privilege. When I read that, I thought about Paul's word in Philippi. He had told them in chapter one, to you it's been granted not only to believe, but also to suffer. He had told them, like Peter's telling these people, you're going to suffer. And then he says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. That I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings. Helen Roosevelt said, I just touched the edge of the fellowship of his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death, Paul wants to die to himself that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He goes on to say, I press on Toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. If you're going to suffer well, it's living for the day, not today. Helen Roosevelt says, In the weeks of imprisonment that followed, and in the subsequent years of continued service, looking back, I've tried to count the cost, but I find it all swallowed up in privilege. The cost suddenly seems very small and transient in the greatness and permanence of the privilege. Our suffering is temporary. Sharing in his glory will be forever. So we entrust ourselves to a faithful creator. A faithful creator who walked into our suffering. The word became flesh and dwelt among us as the one and only son of the father. And he took not just our flesh upon himself, but our sins upon himself that we might have life forever in him. He's the king that we can trust. He has been good and gracious to us and he will be. So we can trust him on the best of days and on the hardest of days. Would you pray with me? Father, we don't ask for suffering, but we do ask, Lord, that if it comes into our lives, that we might be upheld by the power of your spirit, that we might be reminded of the truth in your word so that we might suffer well and rejoice as we do, not being ashamed, but praising God that we bear that name. And it's in that name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Amen.